selfish character. Is this a valid idea? Hello, my name is Stephen Russell Lacey. This is the fourth script in a series of six podcasts on what is in store for us if we survive death. So far, I have introduced the topic of death survival, focused on Swedenborg's account of life after death, and considered the implications of our inner character being revealed to others. You may be feeling uneasy about your future, what fate holds in store, and what will happen to you after you die, if you happen to have a selfish character. So what's so bad in loving oneself? People might think that being self-orientated is actually a good thing. They ask, what's so wrong in loving myself? After all, don't we have to look after number one to survive and succeed? Yes, I would say it's good to make our own way and not be a burden on society. Not looking after ourselves is no use to anyone. So if being concerned for oneself is good, what is actually meant by a selfish life? Well, according to Richard Waitley, who is an English philosopher and theologian, a man is called selfish not for pursuing his own good, but for neglecting his neighbours. And I would suggest that people who are really selfish are willing to exploit others for the sake of their own pleasures. And in their dealings they are self-serving, even if this means being thoughtless, dishonest and stingy. Extreme selfishness tends to lead to being sarcastic, obnoxious and even malicious when one's desires are thwarted. We might wonder about the destiny after death of those who are constantly acting in selfish ways. If we actually are to reap what we sow, then what are the negative effects of this kind of karma? Now, you're wondering, aren't you, can some of us help having a selfish character? Well, okay, we behave in a certain way for a mixture of reasons. Chance as well as choice comes into the picture. How can we be accountable for any one way we are living our life? Don't we have all sorts of desires and intentions? Yes, it is a common view today that we are all born with a mixture of positive and negative tendencies. Having natural streaks of kindness as well as selfishness. Generosity as well as greed. Virtue in addition to vice. And it's generally thought there are loads of external elements beyond our control that affect us. Don't social scientists show the connection between mental health and traumatic experience? Also between crime and poverty. Needing social acceptance from our teenage peers we might have conformed to their social norms, which may be delinquent in the eyes of others. 
So are external factors the only ones responsible for how we live our lives? This is how I see it. We each start off in the world as children, influenced, yes, by all sorts of things. Genetic makeup, family upbringing, community standards, any hardship, all these things affect our conduct. Yes, it is true we have particular inherited tendencies and individual life experiences which affect us. As science has demonstrated, nature and nurture both play important roles in human development. But, in addition, aren't there spiritual things to consider? As we grow up, I would say we each become our own person. No matter in what circumstances we started, we developed as individuals with our own concerns and priorities. We gradually choose our own values and aspirations. You know, I'm trying to argue that who we each become depends on our response to the world, how we react to challenging experiences. Do we deal badly or well with setbacks? Dwell on failure or get on with things? Yield to or resist the allures of life that can lead to illusion and suffering? I would say that what it comes down to is we make our own choices. So are we responsible for ourselves then? Well, yes, according to the criminal justice system, which assumes we are accountable for the courts, for obeying or disobeying the law. We are responsible for our conduct because we choose to follow or go against the social rules. This view is also in line with a branch of philosophy known as existentialism. The cornerstone of this tradition is the acknowledgement of the reality of inner human freedom. It may not always be possible to do what we want, like when we are hard up or subject to tyrannical pressures or are bodily disabled, but nevertheless we are free to think and have intentions as we wish. We may not be free of social constraints in what we outwardly do and say, but don't we exercise our inner freedom to think and intend as we wish, and do this constantly, day by day, hour by hour, and minute by minute? If so, over time, surely a pattern will slowly emerge of the way one is reacting to circumstances. An underlying attitude to life is growing, and this forms our individual character. I would say it might be a selfish one, or it might not, but that is our choice. We end up being who we are and getting what we want, according to what we most inwardly desire. How we end up getting what we inwardly want is illustrated in the 1944 book The Razor's Edge by Somerset Maugham. This novel is acclaimed as a masterpiece. 
It tells the story of Larry Darrell, an American pilot, traumatised by his experiences in World War I, his rejection of conventional life and search for some transcendent meaningful experience. This allows him to inwardly thrive. But his fiancée, Isabel Bradley, cannot accept this vision of life and she breaks their engagement in order to go back back to Chicago, where she marries a millionaire who provides her with a rich family life which she had yearned for. But she can't help herself remaining in love with Larry. Her destiny is that she will never get Larry, who has decided to live as a common working man. He is not interested in the rich and glamorous world that Isabel will move within. And other characters in the book also end up getting what they want, although in some cases tragically so. It is said we are what we eat, and our bodies become healthy or unhealthy according to the food and drink we regularly choose to consume. Likewise, do our minds become spiritually healthy or unhealthy according to what intentions and fantasies we often entertain, according to the habits of thought we form? Yes, says Swedenborg, throughout life on earth one gradually creates one's own inner character. Each person conducts themselves as they choose and in so doing their own life's delight and ruling love is gradually formed. For example, on the one hand I may be preoccupied with gaining social status, or on the other hand be more focused on performing useful roles. As a business person my emphasis may be more about making a mint of money, or on the other hand, being a bit more concerned about fair dealings with suppliers and employees. As a regular pattern develops in my life, then I take on board what I mainly aspire to. I attach myself to things, to fears, to hopes, to values. I make them my own, along with the thoughts that justify them. Now, another problem that people have with the idea of selfishness, they ask, isn't it just polarised thinking? And if we choose our attitudes, who gets to decide if they are selfish or not? Cannot behaving selfishly be due to naivety? Well, okay, in response, I would say yes. A self-centred action might come about because we don't fully appreciate the consequences of what we are doing, how it hurts someone else. Perhaps our friends unduly influenced us to engage in, say, mischief or petty crime. This may not become a set pattern if we respond well when light is thrown on the matter, if we accept the errors of our ways and the negative effects on others. In other words, you might see the concept of selfishness as black and white thinking, 
but I don't think this is a good reason for not using the word, for I would suggest there are degrees of selfishness, just as there are degrees of colour, black and white, like grey, for example. How selfish one behaves depends on the length one goes with what one wants. Take selfishness only a little way, then this might result in, say, envy for those who have what we want. Apply it further, then this feeling may become dislike. Extend it even further, and we might feel anger or even hatred for those who have what we want for ourselves. And engage with selfishness even more completely then we may want to cause harm to others to please our own desires. I would say the most serious kind of selfishness is due to strong desires by those of us who, when we, when we stop to think about it, actually do realise our greed is harming others. But we forget, we allow ourselves to be caught up in the feelings of the moment and we refuse to reflect on our actions. And according to this framework of thinking, most serious of all is selfishness that leads to sadistic violence or even murder planned and done intentionally by those of us who convince ourselves we're doing nothing wrong whatsoever. Of course, this more serious level is far less common it is unusual even for the average policeman to encounter someone crooked to the core. Another problem with the term selfishness people have is they think it's just being judgmental and moralistic. It is true that to speak of a ruling love of selfishness is to take a moral stance. But I would like to say that the matter of selfishness and unselfishness is central to social norms. This issue seems to lie at the heart of various social concerns, the ethics of environmental policy in relation to pollution, business morality in relation to financial fraud, personal conduct that might address sexual disloyalty and betrayal. Does one have to be moralistic to think in these ways? The teaching of a Chinese tradition known as Confucianism is that the evil of selfishness arises because people do not allow their feelings and actions to stay in harmony with their own humanity. For example, not treating others with the respect and fellow feeling that is their due. We get a similar idea in yoga. One of its eight fundamental principles is avoidance of selfish actions. In fact, each of the main religions have a list of ethical guidelines it encourages us to follow. When I allow myself to become immersed in the selfish consumer society, I move away from the deeper spiritual life with its concerns for nature for people in need. By bearing malice and having contempt for others, 
I separate myself from the spirit of compassion. By acting foolishly in a superficial manner, I turn away from the spirit of wisdom. In other words, by entering more deeply into selfishness, I create my own negative karma. Or in common parlance, we say a person creates their own hell. Buddhism's Eightfold Noble Paths include right speech, right action and right livelihood. In other words, right moral conduct. And in Buddhist cosmology, we find the term Naraka, usually referred to in English as hell. But the Buddhist version differs from the old Christian one in that individuals are not sent to Naraka. No judgment is incurred when one reaches the pearly gates. There is no divine reward or punishment. Instead, karma implies self-determination. So, how would we sum up this idea of selfishness? Chadwick Boseman, an American actor who portrayed baseball player Jackie Robinson, he put it this way, the only difference between a hero and a villain is that the villain chooses to use that power in a way that is selfish and hurts other people. So in all this, what counts is not so much the outward action, but rather the inner motive. Choosing between facing one way or the other each day and every day. Is this not a lifelong process? Can this not be a lifelong struggle? Are we not accountable for the values and conduct we choose to make our own? Assuming then that selfishness is a valid idea, in the next podcast, I look at some consequences of this. Do selfishness and unhappiness go together? And if so, why?